This episode contains references to suicide and murder. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. The following is from The Fall of the House of Usher by Edgar Allan Poe. I know not how it was, but with the first glimpse of the building, a sense of insufferable gloom pervaded my spirit. I looked upon the scene before me, upon the mere house and the simple landscape features of the domain, upon the bleak walls, upon the vacant, eye-like windows, upon a few rank sedges, and upon a few white trunks of decayed trees, with an utter depression of soul. There was an iciness, a sinking, a sickening of the heart, an unredeemed dreariness of thought which no goading of the imagination could torture into aught of the sublime. What was it? I paused to think. What was it that so unnerved me in the contemplation of the House of Usher? Good evening, everyone, and welcome back. I'm Alastair Murden, and this is Haunted Places Ghost Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. In this series, we reimagine ghostly tales from some of history's greatest authors. The following version is our own unique take. It may feel familiar in some ways and different in others. We hope you enjoy it. You can find episodes of Ghost Stories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free exclusively on Spotify. This January, we'll be doing something special. In honor of Edgar Allan Poe's birth month, we're releasing weekly adaptations of the celebrated horror writer's macabre masterpieces. We'll begin our journey with one of Poe's most well-known stories, The Fall of the House of Usher. Born in 19th century New England, Edgar Allan Poe contributed an immense amount of writing to the burgeoning Gothic literature movement. Though his work includes some of the earlier science fiction and detective stories, he is most well known for his tales of horror and paranoia. Troubled protagonists obsessed with death, unsettling atmosphere, and beautiful, lifeless young women abound in Poe's fiction. And the fall of the House of Usher is no exception. First published in 1839, the story tells the tale of Roderick Usher, a man doomed to become the last of his bloodline. Trapped with his gloomy, ancestral mansion, Roderick only has one companion, a childhood friend who comes to visit him in his time of need. As in the original story, I'll be telling the fall of the House of Usher from the perspective of this friend and detailing the strange horrors he witnesses, ones that will haunt him for the rest of his life. Coming up, we'll unveil the dark secrets hiding within the House of Usher. 
It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. I first met Roderick Usher more than 40 years ago at the Westfield School for Boys, where my father worked as a groundskeeper. None of the boys at Westfield were kind to me, but the worst of them by far was a thick-shouldered bully named Giles Sutcliffe. Thanks to boys like him, my chores around the dormitories often ended with a black eye or a chipped tooth. But Roderick was different. He wasn't arrogant or cruel. He never joined in with Giles and the others. Of course, we might not have become so close if it weren't for an incident that occurred a few weeks before my 10th birthday. I was scrubbing out a chamber pot when an oily voice broke the silence of the empty dorm. Well, 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 if it isn't the little thief. I looked up to see Giles standing in the doorway. He came striding toward me, shouting, Where did you put my book? The Adventures of Sir Ethelred. I know you took it. Before I could open my mouth to reply, Giles grabbed me by the neck and slammed me against a wall. I struggled to breathe and grasped at his arms, desperately trying to free myself. Suddenly, he released me. I fell to the floor and he shrieked in outrage. I looked up to see that his head was soaking wet. Standing behind him, holding an empty chamber pot, was Roderick Usher. Roderick smiled sweetly and said, So sorry, it must have slipped. Giles stared at him, shaking with fury. I could practically hear him grinding his teeth, but he was powerless. No one would dare strike an usher, not even Giles. He balled his hands into fists, gave me a contemptuous look, and stormed off. Roderick helped me up and grinned with a mischievous glint in his eye. I've been wanting to do that for ages. I looked down at my shoes, my face flushed. I told him that I was grateful for his help, but confessed that I didn't deserve it. I had stolen Giles' book. I was illiterate and hoped I could teach myself to read. To my surprise, Roderick laughed. He put a hand on my shoulder and said, I wouldn't care if you'd stolen his mother's fine china. You'd better keep that book. You'll need something to read after I teach you how. After that day, we became fast friends. For the next two years, Roderick protected me from the other boys, and I protected him too in my own way. Roderick was prone to fits of melancholy, and when his mind descended into darkness, I was the only person who could pull him out of it. On those dark days, I'd often read to him. His favorite was the very book I stole the day we met, The Adventures of Sir Ethelred. Roderick was the lone bright spot in that place. And then, one day, he was gone. One morning, a carriage arrived at the school. From it emerged a tall man in a black coat who told Roderick to pack his things. His father wanted him home. 
And just like that, my first true friend rode away in a carriage and never came back. I was devastated, but my life went on. Thanks to Roderick's patient tutoring, I could read. And thanks to adolescence, I soon grew too tall for the other boys to torment. But still, my days at Westfield were lonely. Years passed, my father died, and then I became the groundskeeper. I took to drinking too, just like my father had. I had all but forgotten about my old friend. Then, the letter arrived. It was the first I'd read from Roderick in nearly three decades. He'd fallen ill. He said I was the only true friend he'd ever had, and he hoped I could come and comfort him in his time of need. It took only that letter for me to remember the many kindnesses Roderick had shown me as a boy, and now that we were grown men, I did not hesitate to do the same. I saddled up my horse and set out. If my friend needed me, I would be there. The road took me through a grim grey bog studded with barren and decaying trees. I travelled for hours through the lifeless mire until finally I came to the steep bank of a small mountain lake. On the other side of the water, an ancient manor sat against a looming cliff. Its stones were blackened with age and a thick layer of moss coated its high-peaked gables. But most striking was a thin crack that snaked its way from the manor's roof down to a narrow road running across the lake. I couldn't say why, but that fracture in the stone sent a chill up my spine. When I arrived at the door, it was opened by a grim, older gentleman with a doctor's bag. He looked at me as if questioning not just my presence on the doorstep, but my entire existence. Before he could question me, I said simply, I'm a friend of Roderick's. The doctor's lip twitched. You'll find him in the room at the top of the stairs. I've advised Roderick against entertaining. His senses are overactive. If you expose him to loud noises or bright light, his condition will worsen. Certainly do not disturb his sister. She's quite ill and must not be agitated. He brushed past me before I could ask any clarifying questions. There was so much I didn't know about Roderick's family. In our years together at Westfield, he never mentioned that he had a sister. I mounted a grand stairwell and came to an intricately carved wooden door. The images were so worn by time that they had become featureless, blank faces staring out into an empty hallway. I knocked twice, and at the murmur of a weak voice inside the room, I opened the door. I stepped into a large bedchamber. The air was stale and musty, and the only light came from narrow windows far above my head. As my eyes adjusted to the darkness, I saw a figure rise from a chair at the back of the room. I stifled a gasp. The slim, fair-haired boy I'd once known had become a skeletal old man with skin like ancient paper and tired, hollow eyes. Roderick's voice was barely a whisper. 
to see you. I see Dr. Richards let you in. He's a foul man, isn't he? He's been with our family for years, but I never trusted him. I forced my lips into a smile as I took my old friend's frail hand in mine. Roderick's eyes may have been sunken, but when he spoke of Dr. Richards, they got that mischievous twinkle I remembered so well. I asked why he didn't find another doctor, someone he trusted. Roderick smiled sadly. Richards understands the ailments of the Usher family. No other medical man could comprehend the generations of foul blood that have amassed in this house. I stared at him, bewildered. The Ushers are an old and respected family. Roderick gave a bitter laugh. <laughs> Feared, perhaps, but not respected. I asked why anyone would fear him. Roderick looked at me grimly and replied, Those stories ought to die with me and my sister. A bell sounded deep within the house. Roderick sighed. Ah, that would be her. You must excuse me. Madeline's condition is very grave. I fear it won't be long now. I told him not to worry about me, and he hastened from the room. I headed back toward the stairwell, hoping to tend to my horse. But I never made it to the door. When I reached the landing, someone stepped out to block my path, standing mere inches from my face. It was not Roderick, nor was it the doctor. It was a woman in a red dress. She looked just like Roderick, with the same flowing white hair and prominent nose. The only difference was her luminous eyes. They were green, flecked with gold. Surely this was Madeline, but what was she doing downstairs? Hadn't she just summoned her brother to the bedroom above us? She smiled. You must be Roderick's friend. I've been waiting for you. Come, let me show you the house. I hesitated. The doctor had said not to talk to her. And the way he had spoken, it seemed like even breathing on Madeline could be fatal. I took a step backward. Uh, are you sure you feel up to it? Instead of answering my question, she took my hand. I shivered at her touch, but had little time to protest as she pulled me into a cavernous ballroom. The walls were panelled in carved mahogany so dark it seemed to swallow all the light that made it through the latticed windows. I tried to gently free myself from Madeline's hand, but her grip was shockingly strong. She pointed to an ornate wooden chair in the centre of the room. That was made in 1350 for Eadred Usher. It was christened in his blood when his brother stabbed him to death. I gave her a thin smile. Fascinating. Are you sure you wouldn't like to go back to bed? Madeline ignored me and pulled me out into a massive interior courtyard. High above were hundreds of rooms, but what caught my eye was a stained glass window set among them. Madeline continued. Eadred's children were Edwin and Edith, 
half-siblings married in that chapel you're looking at now. That became a tradition in my family. Their grandson was an infamous prosecutor of witches. He burns them in this very courtyard. They say he liked the smell. Then there was his son, William, a gambler. He lost much of the family fortune. The shame was too much. She directed my gaze across the courtyard where a dining room was visible through a diamond-paned window. Her nails dug into my palm. I could feel my hand becoming slick with sweat, but the woman seemed to hardly notice my discomfort. No one's been in that room since William poisoned his wife and daughters in it. He couldn't bear to tell them about the money. Can you see the serving bowl still sitting on the table? She laughed gleefully and yanked me over to a spiral staircase. My stomach churned. I didn't want to hear more, but I couldn't get away from her. She dragged me up into a lavish bedchamber. Upon the mantel were two plaster busts, a man and a woman, spitting images of Roderick and Madeline. She clasped her other hand around my arm and squeezed, giggling madly. Her face was inches from mine now. I turned my head so that I would neither breathe diseased air from her nor risk making her sickness worse. She hissed in my ear. This was where my parents slept and where they died. She indicated one of the busts. Roderick I was a cruel man. He trapped me here as he trapped his son. Would you like to meet him? Finally, I wrenched myself free. I stepped back toward the door, shaking my head, my heart pounding. Her mouth had twisted into a sly grin. She said, No. Well, you shall meet him all the same. She turned and ran to the mantelpiece. She swept one of the busts to the floor and then dove at the wreckage. She pulled an object from the shards of broken plaster and held it up, shouting, Here he is! My blood went cold. She was holding a human skull. Coming up, the shadow of death falls upon the house of Usher. The most urgent mysteries in the world are missing persons cases. The stakes are too high not to pursue every plausible possibility, and some implausible ones too. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new podcast, Disappearances. In 2020, after spending years searching for the truth, I use social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now, every Thursday on Spotify, I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. From child abductions and mystifying murders to those who took drastic measures to start over, each episode of Disappearances journeys through a different high-profile missing persons case, ripped from the headlines and ripe for explanation. 
because no one just vanishes into thin air. The answers are out there, waiting to be found. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast Disappearances. Hear a new episode every Thursday, free and only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. No wonder Roderick had kept his sister from me. She was not physically ill, she was mentally ill. Madeline stood in the center of the room laughing and clutching her father's skull, which she'd broken free from a plaster bust. The heavy draperies in the room seemed to billow around her. I imagined them falling and trapping me there like a damask net. Finally, I turned and ran for the stairs. I sprinted through the maze of rooms, not stopping until I'd left the house entirely. I collapsed onto a patch of dead grass on the other side of the lake and fumbled for my flask. After the whiskey calmed my nerves, I felt no guilt for fleeing the house. I had come there to comfort my old friend during his illness. I was under no obligation to spend any time with his sister. I decided to take the rest of the afternoon to explore the surrounding countryside. Perhaps when I came back, Madeline would be asleep. I had hoped to leave the manor behind me, but I could not seem to shake it. No matter where I went in that bleak and foreboding landscape, I could always see some part of the house, a chimney or a tower, as if it was waiting eagerly for my return. When a fine rain began to fall, I decided that I may as well head back. As I crossed over the stone causeway, I noticed again the crack that had formed in the building's facade. It seemed as though it had grown in the few hours that I was away. What had once been a mere seam was now a clear rift running through the stone. Again, I felt that peculiar chill in my blood, a warning I did not understand. I found Broderick pacing back and forth in the hall. When he saw me, he ran forward and clutched my hand. The worst has come to pass. Madeline is dead, and I am alone. Roderick let out a sob. He steadied himself and went on. It happened not long after she called me. We've been expecting it for weeks. In these last few days, she could barely lift her head to take a drink of water. Roderick turned away. He then rested his head against the wall and wept. I stared at him in astonishment. It wasn't possible. The woman had gripped my arm so hard it left marks. She was not some sickly patient. Had she been pretending to be ill for her brother's benefit, or was he lying to keep me from the truth of her madness? Before I could make sense of these bizarre contradictions, Roderick turned back to me with a manic gleam in his eye. He seized my shoulders and exclaimed, you must help me. I need to take her down to the vaults beneath the house tonight. I took a step back, shaking my head. No, I said. I, I couldn't. Roderick looked to me pleadingly. I would not ask if I had any other choice, but I cannot trust the doctor. 
My sister's affliction was unusual, and Dr. Richards has wanted to study her corpse for months. The family plot is far away and not well guarded. If we bury her there, I am certain he will desecrate it. I didn't know if he was right, but the look on my old friend's face was so pitiful. I felt I could not refuse him. Moments later, we hauled her thin coffin down a winding set of stone steps. At the bottom, deep beneath the house, was a heavy iron gate. The gate resisted my attempts to wrench it open until finally it swung free with a hideous shriek. The cold, damp room inside seemed to me like the stomach of some great monster, an acid vault that would turn prey into bile. Iron shackles hung from the walls. I thought of the witches that Madeline had mentioned. Was this the place where they lived out their last sad days? We set down our dreadful burden and Roderick pulled aside the lid of the coffin. I looked away, not wanting to see her face again. When Roderick spoke, he sounded almost as if he were drugged. Her cheeks are still pink. We had our mother's pink cheeks. We were both the spitting image of our mother. Except for her eyes, of course. Mother had luminous eyes. She drowned in the lake when I was a child. It gets us all in the end. He went silent and set the lid of the coffin back into place. We then screwed it shut and locked the iron gate before heading back upstairs. In the days that followed, I noticed a change in Roderick's behavior. Gradually, his lethargy was replaced by a restless terror. He paced about from room to room, chattering incessantly. He expounded upon the many maladies of his ancient family, illnesses of body and mind that had long been festering in their blood. One of his theories was that the house had a life of its own. He believed that the moss and the stones were all part of some sentient being that had been preying on his family for generations. His movement was nearly constant, but every so often he would stop in his tracks. He'd cock his head as if listening to some distant sound and his eyes would go wide with terror. I tried my best to help him. I sat with him for hours, countering his strange fancies with logical explanations. I pleaded with him to leave the house, thinking a day outside might do him good, but to no avail. Eight days after Madeline's death, I finally lost my patience. A storm had been growing on the horizon all day. As the sun set, I heard the first raindrops hitting the window panes. I took too much brandy at dinner, and by the time the first crack of thunder rang out, I was already eager to retire. I noticed the lump in the bed as soon as I stepped into my chambers. I tore back the covers, and my throat went dry. It was a skull. I could see bits of plaster clinging to the bone. I was sure it was the one Madeline had shown me. My face flushed with rage. I was willing to sit and listen to Roderick's delusions all day long, but this was too much. I would not allow him to drive me mad. I grabbed the skull and stomped down the hall to Roderick's bedchamber. I pounded on the door. When no response came, I flung it open. Roderick stood in front of the open window, staring out at the raging storm. 
The accusations I'd prepared flew from my mind as he turned to look at me. His eyes were bulging, and his skin was completely colourless. He cried, Do you see it? You must see it! I stepped up to the window. Outside, the wind whipped at the barren branches of trees. Rain drove in sheets across the lake, and a thick fog surrounded the house. An otherworldly light glowed within it, shimmering and waving like a windswept field of grass. I slammed the window shut and pulled Roderick away. You must not look at it. It's just an anomaly of nature. I grabbed a book from a nearby shelf. By luck or fate, I realized it was our old favorite, The Adventures of Sir Ethelred. I pulled him toward the sofa. Come, let's read a little. Distract ourselves from the stool. Roderick looked frantically back to the window. He then took a deep breath and sat down beside me. I opened the book to a scene where Ethelred had lost his patience with the wicked hermit and entered his dwelling by force. I read, Pulling sturdily, he cracked and ripped and tore all asunder so that the noise of the dry and hollow-sounding wood reverberated throughout the forest. As soon as the words left my mouth, a great cracking sound came from somewhere deep below us. Roderick looked around in terror, but I told him to ignore it. It was just the storm. We were safe. I continued reading, describing how Ethelred entered the hermit's dwelling, only to find the dragon waiting for him. The dragon gave a horrible shriek, I read. There was then a roar from below us. I desperately pressed on. Ethelred dropped his shield. It fell at his feet with a thunderous ringing. A great clang of metal came from beyond the door. Roderick leapt to his feet and screamed, Do you hear that? I've heard it many hours, many days, but I dared not speak. I heard her first feeble movements, the rending of her coffin and the grating of iron hinges. We have put her living in the tomb. Have I not heard her footstep on the stair or the horrible beating of her heart? A heavy thud resounded in the hall and he shrieked. I tell you, she now stands behind the door. The oak door flew open. There she was, her white shroud soaked with blood. She reeled toward her brother and then lunged upon him. I caught the barest glimpse of his face as she bore him to the floor. His eyes were wide and his lips were frozen in a terrible scream. Thinking of it now, I am sure that he was dead before his body touched the boards. But I saw no more. I ran, bolting from that house with everything I had. As I fled across the causeway, a powerful red light bore down upon me. I turned to see a blood-red moon shining through the crack in the house. The fissure had grown wider, and now the stone was tearing apart, crashing to the lake below. There was a tumultuous shouting sound like the voice of a thousand waters. Then, 
the lake closed silently over the remains of the building, and the House of Usher disappeared forever. I would like to reason away the things I saw in that house, to think it all a peculiar coincidence, but there is one fact that plagues me above all the others. The woman in the red dress. I could never forget her face. To this day, I am certain that she is not the woman I saw in the bloodied white shroud. Whatever the truth of that place, I have come away from it changed. I returned to Westfield, packed my things, and left that miserable school forever. I left my father's occupation and his vices behind me. Ever since then, I have not touched a drop of spirits. You see, my old friend taught me one final lesson. That I must not fall victim to my own inheritance. The title of this story has a double meaning. The titular House of Usher stands for both the literal building Roderick lives inside and the dwindling dynasty, or house, to which he belongs. As the family dies off, the mansion that represents their power and influence breaks down, one stone at a time. It's a dark and desolate decline, rife with untold secrets and family trauma. And though the fall of the House of Usher was published at the height of Edgar Allan Poe's writing career, traces of his own childhood can presumably be found in the tale. Edgar's life was marked by tragedy from an early age. He was born in 1809 to a pair of actors working in the Boston theater scene. His mother, Elizabeth, was moderately successful, but the family was far from wealthy. Edgar's father, David, was not as talented as his wife and likely struggled with alcoholism. The same year Edgar was born, he abandoned his family and Elizabeth was left alone with her three young children. Then, in 1811, when Edgar was just a toddler, she became sick with tuberculosis and passed away. After Elizabeth's death, Edgar was taken in by a merchant named John Allen. Though Alan took good care of Edgar and provided him with an excellent education, their relationship was tense. He never formally adopted Edgar, and the two often fought as Edgar grew older. Like Roderick Usher, Poe was burdened by his family's painful legacy. And this burden laid a grim foundation for the horror stories he had yet to write. These, however, would not all be about family, and few would feature such a relatable narrator. Join us next week as Poe steps inside a deeply troubled mind, the mind of a murderer haunted by a heartbeat.
Thanks again for tuning in to Haunted Places Ghost Stories. We will be back on Thursday with Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart. You can find more episodes of Ghost Stories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast free exclusively on Spotify. See you on the other side. Haunted Places Ghost Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Haunted Places Ghost Stories was written by Zoe Louisa Lewis, with writing assistance by Robert Teamstra and Alex Garland. Fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Mickey Taylor. I'm Alastair Murden. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new Spotify original from Parcast, Disappearances. Every Thursday, join me for an exploration into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Following timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the truth. From prison breaks and child abductions to second chances, and even murder. We'll journey through the many reasons people disappear. Follow my new podcast, Disappearances, free and only on Spotify.